Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. And I'm John Lovett, and I've moved myself to the opposite side of the studio because both John and Tommy have the sniffles, and I'm trying to get out of here without them. Lovett reached down into his bottomless well of empathy <laughs> and moved several feet away from us. Um, uh, moments ago, I did open the door with a post-it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I saw you do that, and I didn't comment on it because I just laughed. Look, um, I, I want you both to feel better. I don't see why wanting you two to feel better means I got to go give you guys... Look, that's right. Give you guys hugs. You it's know? a little that's cold. Fun. It's almost over. Um, Unimpeachable logic. Love it. If you can hear me from all the way over there at the end of the, the table, I, I do want to <laughs> say how sorry I am that um, your Rams lost the Super Bowl. I know you are a longtime fan as of last week. First of all, the, from the very moment <laughs> I found franchise. out that Los Angeles had a football team called the Rams, I have been a diehard supporter. Die I hard. would also point out that, unfortunately, this year there was no Super Bowl. There was a scrimmage. Uh, in which uh, they, it looked like a Super Bowl, but of course, due to the failure of uh, the refs, is there something about the Saints? What happened? Who did the Saints play? The Rams. The Rams. <gasps> and th- that call was good. <laughs> it was a good was call. It was a bad call. Hey, hey, people in out from LA get away with stuff. All right, watch the news. All I, all Next I, up on Sports Center. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, as I'm sitting there, uh, I hear Emily on the phone with Lovett. And Emily's like, well, it turns out that Lovett didn't know the Super Bowl was today and made plans to play video games instead. <laughs> no, 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 no. We had a pre-scheduled game night. Game night was converted into a Super Bowl game night. <laughs> so, <clears throat> later in the pod, you'll hear my conversation with The Atlantic's Adam Serwer about the racist photo that prompted calls for the governor of Virginia to resign. We're also going to talk today about President Trump's upcoming State of the Union address and the newest Democrat joining the field to challenge him, Cory Booker. How was Love It or Leave It on Friday? We had a great Love It or Leave It chairman, Adam Schiff, stopped by. Chairman. He talked about Mueller. He talked about impeachment. He talked about vegan hamburgers, one of my favorite episodes. Also, Tawny Newsom and Naomi Ekparagin were on, two of the funniest guests we ever have on Love It or Leave It. So it was a great show. Check it out. Tommy, I hear you have a pretty great Pod Save the World dropping this week. Dropping. <laughs> Had to take my sweatshirt off, John. It's hot as hell in it's here. Very hot. It's in the room studio. temperature. You both have fucking fevers. Uh, ooh, <laughs> okay. Fevers. Wow. Now it was we're fucking uh, hot. Last now week. we're illness shaming. Uh, there's a very special pod save the world coming for you this week. Uh, ben Rhodes and I sat down with Jason Rezaian, who is the former Tehran bureau chief of the Washington Post, who is taken captive by the Iranian regime for 544 days. This horrific imprisonment is totally unjustified and unfair, but. It's such a great conversation because Jason wrote a book about his experience, and then Ben Rhodes was there, and Ben was on the other side of those negotiations. So you can understand it both from like the Washington angle and how Jason felt while he was in prison enduring this fucking hell. So uh, a really cool special episode coming out on Wednesday. Check it out. He's an incredible guy. He's such so a good guy. Definitely listen to this. Um, great book. Read The Prisoner. <clears throat> yes. Uh, we're heading out on tour this week. There will be no Thursday pod. Our show in Charleston will be a Friday pod. Our show in New Orleans will be a bonus pod on Sunday. Our show in Durham will be the Monday pod. There are still a few tickets left for those shows. Just a few. 
So go get them. And there are plenty of tickets left for shows in cities like Boston, D.C., New York, L.A. Go to crooked.com slash events. Get those tickets. Get, get those, those tickets. Tickets. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the news. On Tuesday night, President Trump will deliver his second State of the Union address from the Capitol. The White House has teased that Trump's speech will include calls for unity and bipartisanship and will be built around the theme, Choosing Greatness. Here's an excerpt, guys. Choosing greatness. We have an excerpt straight from the White House. Quote, Together we can break decades of political stalemates, bridge old divisions, heal old wounds, build new coalitions, forge new solutions, come up with new cliches, and unlock <laughs> the extraordinary promise of America's future. The decision is ours to make. Are you guys convinced yet? <laughs> Stephen Miller is such a bad writer. Bad Does he writer. just like, offend you guys as former... Well, I mean, White House speechwriter is someone that can't even put together a sentence is, is writing these things. I mean, it's hard to get past the racism with Stephen Miller. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, and so I mean, he sucks on a lot of levels. That's up front. So you don't usually get to the fact that uh, even if he weren't so racist, his writing would be really bad. So for a speechwriter, just a bad writer. Right. Like if there were, if there were, if this was a normal Republican president, Stephen Miller would have applied to be speechwriter, and his would not have made it out of the first pile because there would have been a pile of better speeches, yeah. and then they would have been like, oh. Who was oh that racist guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, we didn't even get to that when we were we were we declining his speeches. George, George Bush's policies horrendous, horrendous policies. Michael Gerson, pretty good speechwriter. Yeah, great speechwriter. Choosing uh, greatness is like a, a bad motivational speaker you might hear at halftime of a high school football game. <laughs> that is that is the theme. What does it tell us, guys, about uh, Trump's political circumstances that he's trying to rediscover unity and bipartisanship in this speech? You know. Uh, <laughs> it's um and more importantly will this be the night he becomes president <laughs> we had this very similar conversation last year and yeah, i did I not actually uh go to the trouble of pulling last year's articles because let's all just live our lives right <laughs> uh he already he trump stole my brain last year i don't need to go back and give him some more but the uh <laughs> stealing a, it every day you know a state of the union is supposed to both like sort of or it's supposed to organize the administration's thinking and present a clear-eyed version of what the goals are for that administration for the coming year, reflecting their behaviors and policies and actions of the past. But there has never been a president whose state of the unions and presidencies are more uh, distinct. We see that example right now. So he's going to go out and give this speech about unity, yet what's hanging over the speech? Uh, uh him telling CBS that he doesn't that, that he thinks Nancy Pelosi loves human trafficking and yeah, him threatening weird. to declare a national emergency, right? Even in the run up to this speech, his actual actions and behaviors do not align with the version of himself he's planning to present. What do you think, Tom? It just feels like the least anticipated State of the <laughs> Union since they were delivered in envelopes and handed to Congress. I couldn't you, even find a lot of stories yeah, about it. Yeah, you know, right? Like, I guess for a minute I was like, wait, is it really Tuesday or is it next Tuesday? Because no one's talking about it. Yeah. That's because of Ralph Northam, but anyway. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> the, the theme is choosing greatness. Apparently he's going to call on Congress to pass his new version of NAFTA, the <clears throat> USMCA. He's going to talk about Venezuela. They won't say if he'll declare a state of emergency. He'll ask for Congress to work with him on initiatives like infrastructure and health care. And they'll talk about immigration and confronting. It's like all pablum and none of the stuff that they're trying to sell as bipartisan is going to get done. All anyone's going to remember is if he declares a state of emergency or not. Yeah, I mean, he so. is he is one of the most unpopular presidents in history, according to polling. He recently suffered one of the biggest midterm losses in history. And he's uh, fresh off the losing end of the longest government shutdown in history. <laughs> Any other president 
any normal president in such a political circumstance would probably try to move beyond um, rhetorical bipartisanship and unity and actually say, okay, I'm ready to compromise on X, Y, and Z. Now, let's get to the immigration thing. I'm sure in the speech he will say the the senators and congressmen reading, meeting right now on immigration, there's bipartisan, there's a bipartisan deal to be had. Mm-hmm. Democrats have told me they want border security in the wall. I'll just lie about that. Yep. You know, Republicans want that too. I've said yeah, it can yeah. be steel slats and not the wall. Yeah, Abe Lincoln called me last night and said he wants a wall, right? All his lies. Right, yeah. Talking. And like, you know, there there is a deal to be had there. But if there's not, if you can't compromise, which I I know you can, if you can't compromise, I'll be forced to act. It seems like he's gonna end up with something like that. But what's ridiculous about that is, you know, he's gonna make this emergency declaration and um, not only is that declaration opposed by the Democratic Party, but it's opposed by a growing number of Republican senators. Mitch McConnell. Right. You and know, the public, not to say nothing of the public. <laughs> I, al- I also think the reason nobody's paying attention to this goes deeper. It's nice to see that there is a cost to the president being someone no one takes at face value. No one listens to his words, really takes them seriously. They change from day to day. You read into those words his motivations. The State of the Union has another purpose, which is it actually forces previous administrations to organizing themselves around an idea, and actually the saying of it makes it true, right? We are going to pursue this next year. You set a marker for yourself, not just for the country, for yourself. But there's just been a story that's come out that shows that over most of the president's past whatever months, most of his days are just wide open, right? No one actually believes that over, say, the last few weeks, Donald Trump has been feverishly meeting with his policy team, going through drafts and drafts of the State of the Union, trying to really center what he's going to say around what he really plans to fight for in the next year. Also, there's absolutely no evidence that any of these agencies in his government are staffed with enough people and certainly enough competent people to um, move forward with any of this agenda, even if they wanted to. (laughs) He's talking about infrastructure. He's talking about prescription drugs. He's got a whole bunch of acting secretaries. He's got people, he's got agencies unstaffed. He's got a bunch of buffoons in these jobs. (laughs) Uh, It's like, you know. From a political (laughs) calculus perspective, I mean, most presidents, when they try to run hard on an issue like he has on immigration and, and watch public opinion move against them so overwhelmingly, they would give up and move on to the next thing. Part of me is kind of fine with him continuing to talk about immigration almost exclusively because we know it's a losing issue. At least, oh, and also, at least he's not doing other bad things. Yeah, right. I mean, at least he's not making another huge run at repealing Obamacare or God knows what or invading Venezuela or, you know, whatever else he could be talking about. I mean, look, none of these are great options here, no. but it is it's it shows uh, how stupid he is politically. So I want to talk about the national emergency. Uh, Reporters asked him if he was going to declare this in the speech. And he said, I don't want to say it, but you'll hear the State of the Union. And then you'll see what happens right after the State of the Union. I'm saying listen closely to the State of the Union. I think you'll find it very exciting. Guy keeps a great secret. Um, So if he does declare a national emergency, how should Democrats react? I mean, this whole national emergency issue is weird. I mean, in... The late in the mid seventies, Congress passed the National Emergency Act, which gives the White House the authority to declare these national emergencies. Um, it, they're weird and they don't make sense. Like the first one declared was in nineteen seventy nine uh, around the Iran hostage crisis, and it's been renewed every ninety days since. Weird. So it, there, the, there doesn't feel like there's a big emergency element to a lot of these emergencies that are stated. Uh, what should have happened is like Congress should jump in and, and codify 
whatever powers the president needed to deal with these issues, but but whatever. I mean, Republicans and Democrats have all declared states of emergency, so it's not a totally crazy, abnormal thing. Um, I think that we should oppose it because there is no state of emergency on the merits on the southern border. There's no need to do this. There's no need to reprogram Department of Defense money to build a wall that no one thinks we need. Uh, but it will likely be met with uh, a legal challenge. The courts historically have been pretty deferential to presidents about their authority to declare national emergencies, but that doesn't mean the wall will get built. It will likely still get bogged down in the same litigation. So I, I don't know. I, I don't want him to do it because I think it's terrible precedent and terrible policy. But if it moves on from shutting down the government or messing with the debt ceiling, then maybe that's the best bad outcome we can hope for. Yeah, and look, it, it, there is a legislative option here under the National Emergencies Act that you just spoke about a presidential declaration of an emergency can be terminated if lawmakers pass a joint resolution to do so. So House Democrat, the way this would work is Trump declares the national emergency. Pelosi passes this immediately through the House because it would. Um, and then the law says that it has to be taken up by the Senate. Mitch McConnell yep. cannot sit on it. Um, and it would require a simple majority in the Senate to pass. Already, the Washington Post reported today, they have anywhere from four to six to ten Republican senators who don't want this to happen. Now, if they passed, if the Senate passed it also, then it would go to Trump's desk. Trump could veto this, and then probably they don't have the two-thirds in either house to override his veto, and so it goes forward. But I say, yeah, go through with that, because now, now Trump has just, his first veto as president was to override a bipartisan condemnation of him declaring a right. national emergency for a wall that no one in the country wants, yeah. or that, I'm sorry, a minority of people in the country 66% want. 66% opposed. There you go. Right, and you know, <clears throat> again, like to Tommy's point, like, it's both. It's it's actually, you know, it, it captures something essential about the Trump administration. It is both a, you know, a feint towards authoritarianism and dangerous abuse of power built on decades of abuses of power by presidents. And yet, on the other hand, may be just the way out of, uh, may give Donald Trump the face-saving thing he needs to get out of holding the government hostage again, holding the debt ceiling hostage again. So, you know, it's ugly and we should just stand against it. And again, the actual upshot of this will be years of litigation. Yeah. Uh, the Democrats have chosen former Georgia House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams to deliver the response to Trump. Uh, guys, how tough is this job? What do you think of the decision? And uh, what do you want to hear from Stacey Abrams? I think it's an inspired choice. Same. She is uh, one of the most exciting candidates who ran last cycle. Unfortunately, she did not win, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have a bright future in the party. Uh, I think she's also someone that has been I don't know, just been able to deliver a a clear, inspiring message. I mean, look, this is a very tough assignment. You're, you, you follow the pageantry of the State of the Union. You get 10 minutes. It always just looks inherently small. But I think that I, what I've been struck by in, in starting to read 2020 coverage again is how nice it has felt for me to watch normal politics and see normal speeches and like sort of unifying messages that are designed to bring people together. So I assume she will attempt some sort of shot at that while I'm still critiquing the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, it is traditionally a very difficult assignment. I would say, though, it is worth noting that it was, it has gone from being one of the hardest presidents to follow to one of the easiest. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Um, you know, f Donald Trump does not make the most of the pageantry and ceremony. He cannot wear it. He cannot carry it. It's, uh, it's just not, it's not in his emotional intelligence arsenal, arsenal <laughs> to stand up in front of people and use that. I mean, Never has it looked so diminished to be in the hands of someone so small. Mm -hmm. um, and Stacey Abrams is someone who just, uh, even now as I think about it, 
Uh, very few people could follow the State of the Union and then sit in a wingback chair and just talk to the camera, but Stacey Abrams can do it. Yeah, maybe she'll run for Senate in Georgia against uh I hope Sonny so. Perdue well, apparently, one of the reasons, you know, Schumer, he's always he's always scheming. One of the reasons that uh, Schumer <laughs> picked her is because he's trying to convince her to run. That's great. <laughs> Which is great. Good. Love it. Good. Great choice, yeah. and she's brilliant. We love Stacey Abrams. Uh, you know, I would say it is a, it is a very, very tough job <laughs> to do this, and um, Abrams herself was uh, questioned about this last week when she was out here in L.A., and she said, you know, it's tough because you want to give voice to all of the um, feelings people have about the Trump administration over the last couple of years. You also want to put out forward a positive agenda. I would just say, like, there's there's not a ton of business that you have to do in the speech. Like, no. it's not up to Stacey Abrams to lay out the Democratic agenda for the year like Trump just laid out his agenda for the year. So if she wants to focus on one powerful story or one anecdote or wants to talk about the America she sees in big, broad strokes and not get into policy, like, she should do that. I mean, I've said this before, but her the speech that she gave on election night and then the follow-up speech she gave when she refused to concede, when she accepted the results but refused to concede, were two of the best speeches I've heard from a Democratic politician in years. She yeah. is brilliant. She also just wrote this really um, fantastic, fantastic piece. piece in Foreign Policy magazine mm-hmm. of all places. It is brilliant, and I, I defy you someone go to be seen. I defy someone to find a politician who writes in that kind of academic style so brilliantly in either party <laughs> yeah. in politics today. It actually, you know, what I appreciate about it is actually it reminds me also it reminds me of you know, she's not writing it to make a case for herself as a candidate. She's saying, here's what I believe. Here's a kind of politics I ascribe to that will guide me in the future. And it reminds me also of so, a lot of the, the early writing of Elizabeth Warren that was not geared around helping her win, but just sort of laying out an ideological case for a kind of economic politics. And this was laying out an ideological case for a kind of identity politics that uh, she just defended in, in a really thoughtful and smart way. Yeah. Um, Okay, after that um, dose of optimism, let's talk about Ralph Northam. Uh, Virtually every elected Democrat in Virginia and in Washington have now called on the governor to resign after a website surfaced a photo from Northam's medical school yearbook page of a man in blackface standing next to another man dressed as a member of the KKK. After the photo first surfaced on Friday, Northam issued an apology, quote, for the decision I made to appear as I did in this photo. Then on Saturday... In one of the most bizarre press conferences I have ever seen in my entire life, Northam changed his story and claimed that he wasn't in the photo at all and that a mix-up might have resulted in someone else's photo ending up on his page in the yearbook. He also admitted at that press conference that he once put shoe polish on his face to do a Michael Jackson impersonation at a San Antonio dance contest in 1984. I, like, I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth right now. Like, Northam would... Did be- he win? <laughs> he, yes, he told us he won. Oh, he told right. us he won. He said he won because he knew how to moonwalk. And then some fucking reporter asked him, does he still know how to moonwalk? And he looked like he was about to do it. And then his wife stopped him and said, inappropriate circumstances. What the fuck was going on? Here's what I'll say about that. Every person in this world needs someone who will stand up and stop you from moonwalking during your racism apology press conference. That is true. So um, by the time you listen to this podcast... Northam may have resigned. If he hasn't by the time you're listening to it, I don't know what the hell's going on. Um, He would be replaced by Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, a Democrat who's just the second African-American in Virginia history to hold a statewide office. Uh, Okay, let's start with this. What the fuck were Ralph Northam and his team thinking with that statement, that press Mm -hmm. conference? I feel like 
this will be a textbook example for people being trained in crisis communications for years to come. Yeah. I mean, it really is the worst case scenario. It's not just an offensive photo of a white man in blackface. It's someone standing with a member of the KKK, I mean, dressed as a member of the KKK, which is an evil domestic terrorist organization. I mean, it's like it's the the lapse of judgment is so fundamental on every level that I, I, I can't actually understand it. If I guess if he could prove that it's not him in the photo, that the photo somehow got put on his page by someone else and he did not choose that it, to put it there and somehow didn't learn of it and explain also why he was called Coon Man in med school, which is his nickname, then maybe people will listen to that explanation. But I mean, I, I, can't, under, I can't fathom how he has so badly confused this response by uh, confirming and then denying this allegation. And then yeah, that's the thing talking about the Michael Jackson impersonation, which say, oh, and by the way, I actually did do this a different time. I mean, uh, Simone Sanders tweeted, like, no one is saying Governor Northam can't be met with grace and forgiveness, but almost the entirety of the left believe he's lost the ability to effectively govern. Mm. I think that is as concise and perfect a summary uh, as you can get. And he should, he should have resigned on Friday. Yeah. Love it. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, and you say, all right, well, let's let's separate the mismanagement of it from the thing itself for a moment. But the problem is you actually can't yeah, no. because part of the mismanagement was admitting it was him in the photo. So now I don't know what it looks like if he denied it was him in the photo from the beginning, but we can't go back there. So he he took his, he took away any ability to defend himself by at first admitting it was him thinking that that would help him get over this, realizing it was far worse than he anticipated, and then calling this press conference to try to get out of it. Um, the other piece of this, too, is, you know, uh, I, there's, a problem for, there's a problem in our politics in that when you have a, when you have a, a, a scandal like this, it is a scandal not based on something that's happening right now, some actual political event, policy choice, problem in the world as it exists right now, but a symbol and an old one. And the problem we have is that the incentives for Democrats and the incentives for Ralph Northam are not aligned, right? That, you know, he's thinking, I can get through this. If I just hunker down, figure out a way to hold on, then the the media will turn away. Eventually, people will look the other way. People will forget, I'll get through this scandal. And for Democrats, obviously, it's our incentive to say, no, we're drawing a hard line here. We want him gone. He can't get through this because he at first admitted it was him and then tried to take it back. Um, But the problem will be, well, well, what happens next, right? What keeps this story in the public's attention? Republicans will try. Democrats may try. But, you know, there's no actual manifestation of it. It is a historical sim. It is a photo. And so I I don't know how you get out of a situation like this. I also will say, like, Watching him at that press conference, which is so bizarre, he didn't he didn't seem to understand the gravity of the situation no. and the mistake. Like, it's like joking, joking around. about the moonwalk and stuff like that. Like I realize whatever it's a tense situation and you're trying to let, but like no, you know, like it. I mean, I, I you know Clint Smith who uh, was on Pod Save the People saw him tweet about this on Friday. He's like, you know, he was saying his grandfather can still remember hiding in the back of the house when the Ku Klux Klan was riding by. Like, these memories are really fresh. And, like, that is, like, I don't think Northam quite understands how painful and hurtful that is to people in this country who've dealt with that not that long ago. And he also, I mean, and part of what made me realize that is he, he, during the press conference, he talks about this trip he went on with his African-American assistant, and he 
and they talked about the history of blackface and Northam apparently told his assistant about the Michael Jackson incident. He told them during this trip and apologized for it. And having done that, you would think that he would then understand the gravity of the situation now, and it just has not seemed like he has. Yeah, in that yearbook, it's not high school, it's med school. You know, he's significantly older uh, than, not that it's an excuse, but like these are old adults, and there's all the tons of instances of people in blackface in this yearbook. And I'm very sick of the whataboutism from Democrats tweeting at Republicans, okay, now condemn Trump or now condemn Steve King. Yeah. Like, I, I'm sick of that shit. It misses the point. Like, we, it's not just it's that like, of course we were, we're all them. bad. No, <laughs> we, we have to be better than the Republicans on these issues. And I just imagine if you're like an African-American kid living in Charlottesville and you went through the horrific uh, both sides lack of condemnation from Donald Trump when the fucking Klan and neo-Nazis are walking through your city and then your governor dressed like this potentially or or worse in a KKK outfit uh, and that's your alternative. That's well, uh, that's an untenable situation to put anyone in, uh, and it's it, it's it's a humiliating thing as a party to have someone who did that represent the values we say we agree. In. I mean, like mm -hmm. the 2020 field is the most diverse field in history. Uh, this new class in, of members of Congress is the most diverse, exciting, young field in history. Like we can't let shit like this cloud the fact that we we actually care about these issues and we want to. We want a more inclusive society. Yeah, like, and, and I saw some people tweeting, you know, like, why are Democrats, why are we always so hard on our own side? And Republicans, you know, they make excuses for them. And like when they do sexist and racist shit on the Republican side, you know, their members stay on, but we force ours out. It's like, well, that's because this is what we believe. Yeah. This is our, it's because we're not actually playing team sports all the time. And like our team is going to beat their team. Like we believe in a society that's inclusive that um, where we don't allow racism and sexism to flourish like that. We're trying to, to build that society. Like if, if a Republican politician was caught in a yearbook photo, like advocating for higher marginal tax rates or, or, <laughs> or saying that climate change was real, maybe they'd be kicked out of the party. <laughs> the, <laughs> maybe uh, they would push them out pretty fast because that's, <laughs> that's what they believe. They don't, you know, we, we are a diverse party. We are the party that looks like the United States of America. They're not. <laughs> and so with our party, we have to, you know, we have to hold ourselves to a different standard, whether that means that we win or not, political considerations aside. Yeah, and it's also, I think, worth remembering that it's like there's there's value to setting that standard above and beyond simply being able to denounce things that we don't think are right. You know, we're in this period of reevaluation. It's on gender. It's on race. It's on a host of other issues. It's why we're talking about Confederate monuments now. Uh, it's why, in some cases, we're talking about sexual harassment and sexual assault now. We have realized that even in recent years— our, th our thinking of ourselves as having gotten over certain problems, our thinking of ourselves as modern, our thinking of ourselves as having whatever, being post-history in some sense is, is wrong. It was just completely false. And one of the hardest parts about that is there are these two things sitting side by side. One, our standards are going up. And then that's a really positive thing. And then we are taking those standards and saying, and saying who is living up to them and who has always lived up to them. And some people are just failing. And to me, you look back at that yearbook photo, and it's it's not just about Ralph Northam. It's the fact that there was a culture of that school, a glibness and an acceptable 
a glibness around race and a, and a racism baked into the culture of that school that made it a uh, place where people felt safe to dress that way, a place that was not safe for people of color at all. And right now we're looking back and saying, no, this is not acceptable. That the idea that you could go along with that uh, is a completely morally reprehensible way uh, to have gotten where you are. And your explanations are not acceptable. Your denial is not acceptable. And the only way we'll get better is by rejecting by rejecting the kinds of acceptable racisms that came before, including blackface. You know, there's this, this, people say like, well, you know, blackface has just gotten less acceptable. Well, actually just racism has gotten less acceptable. That's all. We're talking about the fact that racism has gotten less acceptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, even apparently in that school, in that yearbook in 2013, there were people uh, dressed up in racist garb. So yeah. And, and the context is, I mean, the last lynching in America was in, in Alabama in 1981. That wasn't a very long time ago. Yeah. And that was the context for, people wearing those outfits to wherever event they were at. And I will say too, there's another reason that we have an obligation to call on him to resign and to call out this behavior. I mean, you know, black voters took a chance on Ralph Northam because he said he was going to fight bigotry and he was going to fight racism. And he did during that campaign. And, you know, by all accounts of people who know him and people in this in the state talk about this, he has passed the right legislation to show that he is standing on the right side of this issue. He has made the right political moves. And for black voters to realize that this man was not who they thought he was because of this past um, sort of breeds, rightly so, suspicion and distrust between black voters and white politicians who claim to be fighting for them. And as white people, we have an obligation to say, no, that that's not okay. Because now we have, it's now it's our job to help repair that breach of trust that Ralph Northam, uh, his actions uh, broke. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. people we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high whether it's keeping the senate taking back the house or stopping republicans at the state level if you're ready to make a real difference sign up for vote save america's 2024 volunteer program 
And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team, east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. All right, let's talk 2020. Uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker announced his candidacy for president on Friday with a very compelling video, I thought. A series of interviews, including one on The View and a press conference outside his house. The former mayor of Newark built a large following on social media and a reputation for promotion, <clears throat> sorry, and a reputation for promoting optimism and what he describes as radical love. According to one article in the Washington Post this weekend, he'll campaign on a suite of criminal justice reforms, baby bonds, Medicare for all, and a Green New Deal. In the past, he's been criticized by some progressives for being too close to Wall Street and pharmaceutical companies, as well as his support for charter schools. Uh, Guys, what do we think of Cory Booker's announcement? What do we think uh, are his strengths as a candidate, his challenges as a candidate? I mean, I, with respect to the rollout itself, I thought it was smart. The The video was extremely well done. I mean, candidly, if you put that drumline to, like, almost anything, it will get me fired up. But it really worked uh, in the video he released, and it worked for him and his, his personality, which is, like, incredibly energetic and optimistic and positive. Um, he also called into the Tom Joyner morning show mm. uh, for a radio interview, and then he called into Univision to do an interview almost entirely in Spanish. <clears throat> so he is setting a, a signal that he's going to speak directly to African-American voters, Latino voters. Uh, he also did The View, and then he did a press conference outside of his house. So he's wisely going around the DC filter to the greatest extent possible. Um, you know, I think... People who know Booker know that he works incredibly hard. Uh, there's like videos of him doing push-ups in between interviews, right? I mean, he's like a hype, super hyper energetic guy. Uh, he's a great record on criminal justice reform. He's, you know, been an outspoken uh, participant in some of the most important hearings of the last couple of years. So I think he will be he will be noticed. I mean, he'll get he'll people will take a look at him. We could talk downsides in a minute, but love it. I'll tell you one thing I've learned. I am a sucker for a rollout video. Me too. I just, I mean, one after another, I'm just in on these videos. The videos are working on me, and you know what? I'm an engaged primary voter, and I'm loving them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look. They've pierced I, your cynicism? They, uh, every, <laughs> I, like, I approach these things. I, I click play. I click play like I'm deciding whether to buy it at Sundance. You know, like, will people want this? I'm like a very angry <laughs> producer. By and the I, end, you're just And like by the end, tears. I'm just like, I love the fonts. <laughs> you know, I'm in. Uh, but, um, you know, look, I, I said this also about uh, some of the previous videos. You know, we have seen a, a lot of the top tier candidates. They are aligning around a certain set of policies. Green New Deal, Medicare for all. Baby bonds is a, is a proposal that's been around for a while. It's, a, you know, a smart and interesting progressive idea. Uh, um, and now I think it's like, what's next? You know, I'm excited to see what happens when all these candidates are getting out there and get pushed off their message, get pushed out of uh, get pushed out of their comfort zones a little? Because I think to me that's going to be the test to prove like who's really up for this. Yeah, yeah my my thought after watching that video is uh, was that Cory Booker did what Elizabeth Warren did in her video. Um, these are now two candidates. And I actually think you can make a case that Pete Buttigieg did this as well. Yeah, three candidates Agreed. who have done the best job of saying. Here's my story. Here's why I'm running. Here's my record that backs that up. 
uh, here's my life story that backs that up. And now you know. And you might not agree with my message or my story, but this is the story. Elizabeth Warren, uh, she thinks the system is rigged. She's the one who can fix it. She's been trying to do that her whole life. Cory Booker, um, you know, he talked about we have a common pain. We have to turn it into a common purpose. I'm an organizer. I brought people together my whole life. I want to bring people together now. Pete Buttigieg is saying, I'm 37 years old. I'm young. We have too many baby boomers in there. <laughs> and I want, uh, I think it's time for our generation to lead. Like, you know what these three candidates stand for, and they have the stories that I match have the exact up. same reaction, yeah. too. Um, he also has a good staff. Our friend Adisu is running his campaign. Yes. Adisu was on uh, 04, 08, 16 presidentials, ran Gavin Newsom's governor's bid uh, recently. Yeah, Adisa was a field organizer in Iowa when I was the Kerry campaign press assistant. We <laughs> I'll say way back when. Yeah. I'll say one more thing too about Booker. Like I think that I am constitutionally not the most receptive to the like language of love that he speaks in. Not mm-hmm. not a judgment of it, just like yeah. literally me as a cynical kind of person. Um, and I have always wondered like how does that translate? to national politics? Yep. How does the poetry and the conversation about love translate? And what I actually saw in that video, and again, this is what campaigns are all about. I was like, oh, I, I, I see it. I see it. I actually saw in his announcement, uh, I saw in his announcement the way it makes sense in a way that I actually hadn't before. And it made me think like, you know what? That's why these campaigns are important. And that's why we should all go into this with an open mind. You know what it is? Is Cory Booker believes this. Yeah. So yeah, you can disagree with it. You can say... Um, this is not the message for this moment, whatever, but Cory Booker believes this and he has lived it. I mean, I watched um, Street Fight over the weekend. I had not seen Street Fight before. The docu- oh, wow. The documentary about his first run for mayor in, in Newark. And, you know, he moves into this affordable housing unit in Newark and lives there. He still, by the way, lives in an affordable housing unit to this day in Newark. He's the only one running who does. So, like, Cory Booker has lived this story his mm-hmm. whole life. Now, you know, the New York Times says... Quote, it remains to be seen whether Mr. Booker's aspirational tones will fall flat with the Democratic electorate energized by seething anger towards Mr. Trump. He was also asked if Donald Trump is racist and said that while Trump says bigoted things and uses language that white supremacists use, I quote, I don't know the heart of anybody. I'll leave that to the Lord. Um, What do you guys think about this message, this aspirational message and sort of the the possible difficulties in a Democratic party? Here's where I think reporters sometimes confuse what they see on Twitter with what Democrats writ large actually want. I mean, yeah. I've seen polling that suggests that Democrats actually do want a largely positive, optimistic, hopeful message that isn't all about Trump. Yeah. And so I think that that's why Elizabeth Warren is doing a very similar, has a very similar tone. She didn't barely mention Trump in her first visit to Iowa. Um, but you know, with respect to to Booker, like he can be a little a little extra at times. Yeah. Like when you and I interviewed him in Washington, it was like the three of us sitting in a room just having a conversation, and you know, like one very long answer. He, I think he quoted like three different people, like King Gandhi, Gandhi. Yeah, he does King the whole thing. Gandhi. It's yeah. like sometimes you're like, we're just talking here, you know. So <laughs> I, you know, it's a question of whether that will always work in rooms in Iowa or whatnot. Um, I think he's also going to get shit for being seen as too pro Wall Street or having too many big donors versus the small dollar donors uh, that were particularly attracted to Bernie and, and probably Kamala Harris again. I think that defending Bain Capital in the middle of the 2012 election was, a, was an odd choice. Uh, Obama was hammering Mitt Romney for his ties to Bain uh, and he jumped out and defended Bain. And it, it sort of, you know, to me had the that tone that you hear from a lot of Wall Street people where they feel aggrieved and attacked. And it's like, I couldn't fucking care less that you 
billionaire feel aggrieved and attacked. I'm not accusing Booker of that. I'm just saying it like it sounded like those voices you sometimes hear when you try to raise taxes on on Wall Street people. So these are things that he's going to get questioned on. Um, you know, I think he will inspire a lot of people in the process, though. Yeah, I, I will say that when he refused to call Donald Trump a racist, I, my eyes rolled so far back into my head. It's like, all right, man, like, come on. Uh, well, I just don't think like... I just think it's a, I get, yeah. I, I, but, but, but I would say like, I don't, I actually don't think it's that important. I understand what he's trying to say. I understand. I don't believe that Cory Booker <laughs> lacks an understanding of the context of Donald Trump's racist right, behavior right, right, at all. Right, right. The point I was actually going to make is I think his bigger problem is around issues uh, related to Wall Street and corporate interests because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it actually comes down to like this idea of a positive message. I think there's a shibboleth now for- Define Dem- that word. Um, a, a, a proof that you're on the team. Cool. Uh, that like that that people need to understand that they've heard a lot of Democrats say the right things around reigning in corporate power, reigning in insurance companies, reigning in Wall Street. But then when push comes to shove, there's the question as to do they have the stomach for it? Like, are they really in for this fight? And it's a fight that actually requires a little bit of negativity. You know, it does mm-hmm. require a little bit of you know spleen. And so I think. Cory Booker's biggest challenge as a candidate, it actually is connecting that positive vision, that conversation around love with actually attacking some of the sources of problems in this country and being clear-eyed and honest and passionate about why you need to take those uh, uh, interests on. Yeah, look, and I think there's, there's two possibilities here, right? His detractors would say one possibility is um, he has uh, lived in New Jersey. There's a lot of people in New Jersey who work in the financial industry. There's a, a big pharmaceutical industry presence in New Jersey. Pharma too, yeah, that's and right. And that he is mm-hmm. too close with these interests because he has been a senator from New Jersey, and, and that's why. And he he opposed, specifically opposed a drug reimportation from Canada bill that he's gotten a lot of grief right. from. And then the other possibility is he is one of those Democrats who believes, and you know he says this sometimes, there are bad corporate actors, and we have to take on bad corporate actors, but I don't want to paint all business with a, with the same brush, right? And he could be one of those Democrats. Now, I think the proof is in the record. He's got to talk about his record, right? He took, that, he took a bad vote on pharmaceuticals, and then, of course, this year, he uh, decided to support Bernie Sanders' bill to rein in prescription drug costs, right? And so he's taken some good votes against financial companies and but maybe he's been spent too much time fundraising on Wall Street. Yeah. So like he's gonna he that his challenge is going to be sort of talking about his record and proving that he can take on powerful interests when need be. Two things I really liked uh that he has done or did do in this rollout was one, he did something unprecedented when Jeff Sessions was nominated for attorney general, which is a sitting US senator uh, offer testimony against him. I think that was a prescient decision. I mean, Sessions was as bad, if not worse, than we thought he would be. So that was a good thing. Yeah. Um, he's also one of the only people I think I've heard talk about environmental justice in his rollout. He was talking specifically about elevated lead levels uh, and how that can harm kids like permanently and, and it really, really bad. It's really, it, you know, lead paint poisoning is a horrible thing. It, it can uh, impair you for life. And he was talking about that and super fun sites, et cetera. And I think it, that's not talked about enough. Uh, and it was cool to hear him say that. And it was, and it was uh, really authentic to hear him say that from basically, you know, his his front porch in yeah. Newark. Yeah, that's right. I, my biggest issue with him is that he said in that press conference um, he wouldn't get rid of the filibuster, and in fact would actually try to defend it. John is a one issue voter. Well, here's my here's my problem. With I'm going to keep harping on this, right? Like, so now Cory Booker, um, Kirsten Gillibrand was sort of waffly on it in my interview with her. Uh, 
Kamala Harris's people said she is not calling to get rid of the filibuster at this time. Um, Elizabeth Warren is so far the only one who said, yeah, everything's on the table. So if you believe in the filibuster, if you want to keep it like Cory Booker does, that's fine. We can disagree on it. That's fine. But it's going to be very difficult to tell voters, I believe in, and maybe voters won't care about this, but it's the honest thing to say. It's hard to say, I believe in the filibuster. I want to keep it. And by the way, I want to pass Medicare for all. I want to pass a Green New Deal. Like we just had every single Republican except for, you know, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski and John McCain vote to destroy the Affordable Care Act. You are not then finding vote Republican votes for no. Medicare for all. Barack Obama in 2009 gets to Congress and Mitch McConnell says, I'm going to block every single thing he does. You are not going to find Republican votes for your agenda. And you are not going to have 60 Democratic votes in the Senate anytime within the next decade. It's just not going to happen. Look at the map, count up the races. So you have a choice. You can either decide you're going to get rid of the filibuster or you can tone down your agenda and tell people, well, I'm just going to try to either work with the other party on smaller stuff and I'm going to take executive action. But other than that, I can't do anything big. That's Basically your choice. Basically an agenda, a Democratic agenda that you can achieve through reconciliation, right? Basically like an agenda that that, that yes. you right. will yeah, pass yeah. with 51 votes. That's what you're talking about. Which are all about. budgetary for you reconciliation. You can talk about higher taxes. You can talk about a lot of things, but what you can't talk about is- You can is, talk about executive actions and you could talk about like your criminal justice reform that you got done by working with some yeah. Republicans. I I mean, yeah, sorry. Well, I mean, what you're- I mean, what you're talking about is also sort of, uh, is it often a criticism you hear of Obama from the left, including of the 08 mm -hmm. campaign, including by Hillary Clinton at the time, that like, oh, hope and change, we're going to bring everybody together and solve problems. And in reality, it, that did not happen at all. Mitch McConnell uh, lay down on the railroad tracks to block everything that ever happened. I guess for me, when it comes to the filibuster, like, I just... I. I, you're right. They'll have to get rid of it. I just don't really care if they answer that in the context of this primary. I'm, I'm happy to let them message it any way they want and just deal with it when they deal with it. Yeah, but I just I think I I agree with that to an extent. But um, I think we have a problem, not just Democrats, but everyone in politics, with promising one thing to voters and then disappointing them a lot later. And I think that if it was as easy as okay, I'm not going to get into this in the into the primary right now but when i'm president i'm just going to do away with it that would be one thing but these people when they become president they don't have the power to do away with the filibuster they actually are going to need 51 votes in the senate to do away with it and it's not like we are don't just yell at the presidential candidates by the way like go talk to all the senators because there are nowhere near enough votes in the democratic sen in the, among democratic senators to get rid of the filibuster well, either so it, i guess and booker I, says he'll actively work to, to preserve to, it yeah. so i guess what i'm worried about and this is non-ideological because on this side on, the, on this case, I'm worried about people not being honest about not getting rid of the filibuster. On other things like Medicare for all, I'm worried about people not being honest about the transition it will require. But I do think, forget about Republican attacks, forget about lobbyists, donors, all this bullshit. Like, just think about you're trying to get voters to believe your agenda and what you're going to do, and you don't want to disappoint them once you're president because when people get disappointed, they get more cynical and they don't participate in politics. I also, it's... Uh, I see the I see why they want to talk about policy and they want to talk about broadly popular proposals as opposed to Senate logistics. Totally, Senate people process. care about. Yeah, exactly. I get that, but I think the Elizabeth Warren answer, all officers on, on the table, is a much smarter one. Uh, give yourself the option. Um, the other piece of this is it's it's uh, having having campaigned on the possibility of removing the filibuster will actually have a substantive 
change in how you can govern even if the filibuster is in place for a time. That's a very good point. The threat that you will remove the filibuster at any time will mean that there will be a set of Republicans who understand that at any moment the leverage and power they have in Washington will disappear. And it, and it could facilitate more compromise. Absolutely. Finally. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's really important. Um, and I also do think it is about setting the table in the same way that Republicans set the table for a long time, in part because of some decisions Democrats made to say, uh, if Democrats uh, employ the filibuster on a Supreme Court nominee, we will get rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees, right? They built that case, they built that case. And then when it happened, they were ready to go. It wasn't a surprise. Yeah. Nobody was caught off guard. Uh, it happened. And they got recriminations for it. But, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell sleeps Barely. fine at night. Yeah. Susan Collins was like, oh, I hate this vote. <laughs> cool with it. This uh, is just one of the worst things that I ever... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, when we come back, I will talk to... Adam Serwer from The Atlantic. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Hey, it's Lovett, and I'm on my way to your city. And by on my way, I mean I'm still in the shower, but still, about to head out. Love It or Leave It Live on Tour is heading all over the country. We'll be in Charlotte, Asheville, Boston, Madison, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. And if we're not coming to your city this time, I'm sorry, the country is too big. Take it up with the pioneers. To learn more and get tickets, head to crooked.com slash events. On the pod today, we have Adam Serwer, staff writer at The Atlantic, and one of my favorite writers about race and politics in the Trump era. Adam, welcome to the pod. Uh, thank you for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. <laughs> um, so you have a piece out this morning about why Ralph Northam should resign, uh, where you say that more is at stake than the governor's career or ambitions. What did you mean by that? I think that, um, you know, this is something that's obvious to pretty much everyone, but the uh, social barriers against overt expressions of prejudice have been eroded by the president. They began eroding the second he came down that golden staircase calling Mexicans rapists and murderers. And the only way to repair or ensure that that standard is not further eroded is to hold public officials accountable for that kind of behavior. And I think that's even more important for a party that wants to 
um, hold the mantle of anti-racism in the way that the Democratic Party does and in the way that Northam in particular did when he was running for governor. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's not enough to say, well, it's not like Trump's going to resign. Um, if you want to be a leader of a party which uh, holds itself to a higher standard of behavior than the person that they consider racist who is in the White House, then, then you really have to hold yourself to that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you also write about the difference between interpersonal racism, uh, as you define it, individual acts of cruelty or prejudice, and systemic racism, the embrace of policies that harm people of color. Um, why do you think that incidents of interpersonal racism, like Northam's picture or Trump's language, tend to get so much more attention and sort of swift condemnation than systemic racism? And what can we do about that? I'm not sure what we can do about it, sort of sort of having everyone look uh, more closely at the big picture. Yeah. Uh, but when we're talking about this, that distinction, I mean, it's just easier to say you used a naughty word and you shouldn't have done that, or you, you know, you did something that that was individually that was racist and condemn that, because it's a lot less scary than really considering the extent to which racism has shaped um, the American political political system and continues to shape it. Yeah. And once you get into that, it starts implicating people who may not necessarily have malicious intentions, but are participating in a system and upholding a system that treats people differently according to race. And in the case of Donald Trump, you have someone who, uh, and I wrote about this a couple of years ago, who, you know, a lot of people consider themselves anti-racist, nevertheless um, pulled the lever for Trump because they convinced themselves that um, his he, he wasn't actually racist, that he cared about everyone, despite policies that he was proposing that, you know, as I list in the piece, were in, have been incredibly discriminatory and have hurt um, hundreds of thousands of people uh, when you really uh, start looking at the numbers. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I thought about this, too, during the whole Covington Catholic incident. And I was like, you know, we're spending like four or five days talking about what really happened here. And in the meantime, we it did not uh, facilitate a larger discussion about how we treat Native people in this country, <laughs> um, which would be a good discussion to have. But it seems like every time there's an incident like this, we can't seem to sort of like broaden the discussion into the larger systemic issues at play here. I, I think people, um, I think these sort of large symbolic events uh, draw people's attention in part because they feel like the lines are clear. Um, whereas when you start talking about systemic di- discrimination, things, uh, particularly for people who benefit from the system, start getting you know grayish pretty fast. Uncomfortable. And yeah. Once that starts happening, they people tend to get less strident, yeah. um, which I think is in a way why it's so important for Democrats uh, to draw a, a really bright line here. What did you make of how quickly the, nearly the entire Democratic Party, both in Virginia and nationally, called on Northam to resign? Well, I think that's a reflection of the fact that the Democratic Party um, is in, is reliant. It is not viable without black voters. Um, and I think the image of a physician in 1984 possibly wearing blackface, and Northam admitted that he wore blackface in another context, is just evocative of a lo- centuries-long history of black people either being mistreated or being exploited 
for medical research or or, or being um, misdiagnosed or not properly treated for medical problems based on beliefs about intrinsic racial differences that don't actually exist. Um, and, and so I think uh, it, it was a combination of the sort of sim- the, the 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 evocation of this form of entertainment that was created in effect to say that black people are happier when they are subservient to rights, uh, subservient to white people, um, in combination with this history of medical racism in the United States that I think really, um, I think it just really hit a strong chord with um, people without whom the Democratic Party simply is not viable. And the distinction between that and, you know, the fact that Steve King is still in office and wasn't censured until now, and the fact that Donald Trump is president is reflective of the fact that there are no, there's no constituency of voters within the Republican Party that are willing to punish um, their elected officials in the same way. Well, yeah, and you've written about this before, too, right? Because it's, you know, the fault line in American politics right now is not, it's not tribalism. Uh, it's it's racism as you as you've yeah. written right like the, and this is why there's actually a substantive difference between the two parties and how they deal with these incidents. And I think you can actually see that on 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 the local level, you can actually see where Republicans are beholden to voters of color. They behave, actually behave kind of differently. And you you look at in Florida where where that uh, elections official resigned when he was. Uh, revealed to have dressed up in a blackface costume in part because Ron DeSantis is reliant on a substantial constituency of 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 non-white voters for whom uh you know without whom he he wouldn't have actually beaten Gillum. So I think that you know again it, it's about who is who politicians are beholden to and who their constituencies are uh and I think that has a lot more to do with whether people actually get punished for racism or elected officials get held accountable for racism than you know whether or not uh the individual politician is themselves particularly virtuous so I wonder how you see this dynamic playing out in the democratic primary because i I thought it was interesting that on the same day the yearbook photo surfaced you've got Cory Booker kicking off his presidential campaign. And when a reporter asked whether Trump is racist, he says, well, he says bigoted things and he uses the language of white supremacists, but I don't know the heart of anybody. And then also interestingly, Sherrod Brown has asked the same question and says, yes, he's a racist. <laughs> what did you sort of make of those different responses? Um, I think that uh, Booker's response is, is reflective of a recognition that you see um, you know, throughout the mainstream press and, and throughout uh, and among a lot of politicians, honestly, Democratic and Republican, that um, white people are more likely to be accused of racism than suffer from racial discrimination. And as a result, they're extremely sensitive, or not everybody, but a lot of people are very sensitive to the idea that um, they're going to be accused of being racist when actually they think they're a good person. Um, and I think Booker's remarks are reflective of that concern. He 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 he. he, he thinks that, you know, in order to appeal to white voters, he has to avoid um, uh, uh, avoid a situation in which he seems, he appears to be uh, labeling a large chunk of the electorate as racist. And for whatever reason, Sherrod Brown is uh, less concerned about that. And I don't know if that that's because he feels that he um, is 
accountable to a set of voters who are going to forgive him for that, or his yeah. presidential ambitions and presidential ambitions aren't fully fleshed out, or I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that the reality is that white people are the demographic majority, and their concerns. Um, are going to have an outsized influence on the way that we talk about racism. Yeah. I just wonder if there's there are white voters out there who, if you say that Trump says racist things and does racist things, that will give them a different impression or, or somehow influence their vote differently than if you say Trump is racist. <laughs> like, I just don't know how much that distinction matters, but maybe it does to some people. I don't know. Well, I, I, something that I, I thought about when, when Booker said that was to what extent he feels like, um, you know, as a black candidate who's trying to appeal to those um, Trump-Obama voters, whether he can, uh, you know, he, he can, in a sense, reassure those voters that he's not judging them right. by talking about racism, honestly, in, in a way that uh, reminds me of the way that Obama talked about totally. it. Totally. That was my first thought. <laughs> I mean, Obama was very careful to, like, I don't think Obama would have called Trump a racist to, to be mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest. And I think that I think that, you know, Brown may feel more comfortable doing that because he's a white guy. Yeah. Um, but I don't. But, but you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that those actions are predetermined based on race. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I don't recall what Kamala Harris has said about it, but uh, you know, I don't think it's necessarily the case that a black candidate has to be like, well, I don't know what their what's in their heart, but I do think that the political calculation um, may be a bit different because of that. Yeah. Um, so, last question: Stacey Abrams is is going to be delivering the Democratic rebuttal on Tuesday. Uh, she recently wrote a pretty forceful essay for Foreign Affairs about how identity politics actually strengthens our democracy, uh, and she said that. She makes the argument that her diverse coalition in the 2018 Senate race was built by understanding each group's unique concerns instead of trying to create what she calls a false image of universality. What did you think of that piece? Um, I thought it was a great piece. Yeah. Um, I um, am not from Georgia, and obviously I followed the, the Georgia race, but I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a, a Stacey Abrams expert. But I thought that piece was extraordinarily perceptive um, about what what conservatives call identity politics actually is, which is um, formally, which is marginalized people who formerly did not have a voice um, demanding the same rights as everyone else. Um, And that's generally what people mean when they say identity politics. And it's a, it's a kind of um, denigration of those people's uh, vital interests. Um, and I think Abrams is fundamentally right that, that that it's about expanding democracy, not constricting it. Yeah. No, I thought you made a, a, a very persuasive case, too, that part of the problems with calls for uh, more universality and sort of a message that appeals to everyone at once is that it sort of ignores the historical discrimination that's not too far in the past at all, <laughs> uh, legally, that um, all kinds of different minority groups have faced in the country. I also think that you can find the universality in the specific. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talking about, I mean, I think Obama was pretty good at this. Um, you know, he was, he, he cast his unusual heritage as, 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 a, as a uniquely American thing. And I'm not necessarily sure that's the case, but what he did was he made that story universal in part by being so specific and talking about, um, 
the values that he uh, inherited in his unusual family that were reflective of, you know, the way that people raise their kids everywhere. Um, so I, I think there's a way to be both universal and specific at the same time. And I think that uh, to the extent that there's a barrier in seeing those certain stories as universal because they're specific, it has a lot to do uh, with not being able to relate to people who are unlike you. Yeah, but you're you're right. I mean, Obama tried to root his unique story and his differences in, as quint in the in the American story. You know, this is fundamentally right. American, and no other story is this is this is no other country on earth is, is my even story possible? even possible. Right? Would be the line. Um, Adam, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate Thanks you chatting with us. Me. Yeah, and uh, come back again soon. Take care. Take care. Thanks to Adam Server for joining us today, and. Uh, Thanks to Patient 1 and Patient 2 yeah. <laughs> for being here. I think I feel better hey, already. By the way, guys, I just want to say congrats to your Patriots. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. I had a wonderful time watching the game. I consumed uh, a whole pig uh, cooked on a spit that had just eaten uh, rat feces. Name the movie. What? Contagion. We talked oh, about this last week. Oh, oh, sorry. I get Contagion and Outbreak confused. Me too. I only saw Contagion one time on a plane. Well, spoiler. But well, yes. that's the best part of the movie. <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> that's what a spoiler is, yeah. Um, I'm more of an, look, I'm an Outbreak guy living in a Contagion world, you know? The Mutaba virus, anybody? These were all jokes. Anyway. Mutaba. This ad is, this if, ad, you, if you made it this far. I hope there's music. What a, what a little <laughs> Easter egg for you. Bye, guys. Bye. Go Rams. <laughs> <laughs>